like to have us turn to our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 through 24. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 23 through 24, and actually we're going to skip around a little bit in this text, so we'll read some verses at the end of this too. But that's on page 930, if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews. And we are wrapping up a four-week sermon series that we've been doing here at Ivanrest called Apprentice to Christ. We've been talking about what it means to be disciples of Jesus. And uh, we've sort of been looking at a few sub-themes, I guess, of this. Uh, Week one, we talked about following Jesus. That's the call that Jesus would issue to his disciples. Follow me, he would say. So what does it mean to follow him? Uh, The second week, we talked about spending time with Jesus, being with him. Last week, we talked about loving Jesus and what that means. And today, we're sort of wrapping this up with a final piece of that puzzle, uh, which is being like Jesus or imitating him, which is part of what Paul talks about here. And I also think that it's kind of intriguing that we're hearing from the Apostle Paul this morning. All the other uh, texts that we've looked at in this series have been written by Jesus' original disciples. So the first week we looked at a text from Matthew, and Matthew is one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him. Um, And then the last two weeks we've looked at texts by John. Same thing, one of Jesus' original disciples. But Paul did not follow Jesus as his disciple during Jesus' earthly ministry. It was only actually after Jesus had died and been raised from the dead and actually ascended that Paul came uh, into the faith and became a disciple of Jesus. And in that way, he's kind of similar to us because we did not have the opportunity to follow Jesus around during his earthly ministry. But like Paul, we have come in sort of after the fact. And so it's one of Jesus' disciples like that writing to us as his disciples today. And this is what he says. So 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and then following. And Paul actually starts by quoting the Corinthians. He's quoting a slogan that seemed to be popular in Corinth at the time. He says, I have the right to do anything. Yes, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then we'll skip down to verse 31 here. And Paul writes, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then this is really the piece that we're looking at uh, with special focus today. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers, sisters, and friends in Jesus Christ, as a former uh, English major, I graduated with a bachelor's in English from Calvin University uh, years ago, and as a self-avowed nerd, one of my favorite jokes has to do with mispronunciation. I'm sure none of you who know me are surprised. Uh, Basically, whenever someone mispronounces a word, I like to joke, you know, I think you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. I'm, uh, I'm loads of fun at parties. Um, the reason that joke is so funny, though, at least to me, and yes, I'm about to explain it, is because I'm actually putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable while talking about doing that. It's just hilarious, right? Uh, thank you for actually laughing, too. I really appreciate that. It's not just words that we do that with, though, where we sometimes misplace the emphasis. 
We do it with other things, too. For instance, maybe you have a boss who likes to emphasize things like efficiency, speed, and getting stuff done. But the real problem at your job, at least as far as you can tell, is a lack of quality. Put simply, because your boss keeps emphasizing speed, efficiency, and production, everything that you and your coworkers do is so quick that the quality suffers. And so while people are certainly working fast, they're not necessarily working well. The emphasis, it turns out, is on the wrong syllable. Your boss is emphasizing efficiency, but what he should be emphasizing is quality. Or maybe you have a coach who cares a lot about winning. All he cares about is winning, in fact. You started playing because you enjoyed the sport, but his tenacity and drive for success has sucked the joy right out of it for you. Every practice, every game is just about winning, and if you don't win, he gets frustrated and angry and works you even harder. You start to wonder if you even want to keep playing. Again, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. And the truth is that we do that sometimes with our faith as Christians, too. But simply, as Christians, there's no end to the ways that we've missed or overemphasized certain aspects of our faith over the years. After all, uh, the church has gone through phases where we have emphasized everything from martyrdom to marriage, poverty to priesthood, angelology, which was an overdeveloped theology of angels that became especially popular during the Middle Ages, to eschatology, which is the study of the end times and has been much more overemphasized in recent years, and everything else, too. But simply, we have a habit at times of putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable as Christians. And that includes with Jesus. Far too often, we have put the emphasis on the wrong syllable when it comes to him too. When it comes to how we see him, what we think of him, and what it means to follow him as his disciples. For instance, uh, recently I've been thinking a lot about the word believer. Believer. After all, that's one of the words that we use to describe ourselves as Christians, right? We call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, Christian believers, believers in the Lord. In fact, in fact, that's actually a word that I've used a lot, kind of like I did this morning when I was teeing up the text, right? One of the things that I will often say is, uh, you know, like using this text as an example, uh, Paul writes this text to the believers in Corinth back then, as well as to us as believers today. Maybe you've noticed this, but that's one way that I'll often tee up a text uh, right before I preach is by talking about the believers back then and us as believers today. That's who we are, right? We're believers in Jesus Christ. And yet I've been thinking a lot about that word believer and whether it really captures enough of who we are as Christians. Now, I should say right off the bat that there's nothing wrong with that word. After all, believer is a biblical word. It's a word that the Bible uses to, to describe people who believe in Jesus Christ. And it's also an accurate word. The fact is, as Christians, we do believe certain things. We believe certain things about God, certain things about Jesus, and certain things about how to live our lives as Christians that not everyone else necessarily believes. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with that word. And yet I wonder, at least I've been wondering recently, if it's not another case of us putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, or maybe at least putting the emphasis just on one syllable, when in fact it should be on multiple syllables, which makes no grammatical sense, but it works for my illustration this morning. 
You see, like we've been talking about in this series, being a Christian has more to it than simply believing in Jesus Christ. There is more to being a Christian than just believing in Jesus. A lot more, actually. Being a Christian certainly isn't less than believing in Jesus, but it's not just believing in Jesus. And I at least think it's time we started recapturing some of that more to what it means to be a believer in Jesus, putting that emphasis back in all the places that it belongs. This uh, actually came home to me recently uh, in a new way when I was rereading John Mark Comer's uh, book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, Truth be told, I actually forced our entire staff here at church to read it. After I read it the first time, I was like, this, we're, we just all need to read this. And so I made them all read it. Aren't you glad I'm not your boss? Uh, anyway, at one point in the book, Comer makes an interesting observation. It's a little long, but I think it's worth it. He writes, most of what we know about Jesus comes from the four Gospels. Essentially, the Gospels are biographies. Most of the content is stories, which is a bit strange, seeing as Jesus was a teacher. Matthew and John have the most teaching content per capita. Luke is in the middle. Mark has almost none. But the bulk of all four biographies is story, telling you stories about Jesus, which makes sense, actually. Think about biographies in general. Why do we read biographies? Usually they're luminaries of some kind, or we read their life story, and and we read their life stories not just to know about them, but also to become like them, or possibly to make sure we don't become like them, to emulate their success or avoid their failure. In reading about them, we hope to better understand ourselves. In reading their stories, we hope to make sense of our own. And biographies are full of stories because if you want to emulate or eschew, avoid the life of Steve Jobs or Barack Obama or insert your biography of choice, you don't just look at what he or she said or did. You look at how he or she lived the details of day-to-day life. If you're smart, you copy those details. Make the individual's habits your habits, his or her routine your routine, his or her values your values, in the hope that it will foster a similar kind of result in your own more ordinary life. So this person went to X law school, you go to X law school. He or she read an hour a day, you read an hour a day. He or she skipped breakfast, you throw out your bananas. The person was famous for an afternoon power nap, you buy a couch for your office. You copy all these details because you know the person you will eventually become is the cumulative effect of thousands of tiny, seemingly mundane, or even insignificant details that in the end function like compound interest and create a life. Still tracking, he asks? Good. Here's the weird thing. Very few followers of Jesus read the four Gospels that way. We read them as cute sermon illustrations or allegorical pick-me-ups or theological gold mines. Again, not bad. But we often miss the proverbial forest for the trees. They are biographies. What Comer is saying there, and uh, I think he's right, by the way, is that being a Christian isn't just about believing head knowledge in Jesus. It's not just about dotting our theological I's and crossing our theological T's. It's not less than that, but it's not just that. There's more to it. 
Instead, being a Christian, a little Christ, which is what the word Christian really means, means living like Jesus, being like Jesus, and as the Apostle Paul puts it here in this text, following his example and imitating him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just believing in Jesus, but actually becoming more like Jesus. Now, we just mentioned Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is the author of this passage, and he's actually in the middle of a complex discussion about a hot-button ethical topic uh, here in this text. You see, all the way back a couple chapters before this, at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul starts talking about one of the most divisive, most complicated, most controversial ethical issues of his day. You want to know what it was? Meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, These days we're dealing with gender, sexuality, civil religion, abuse, and toxic masculinity, but Paul was dealing with meat sacrifice to idols. Kind of wish we could go back to the good old days. Um, Why, though? Why was this an issue? Because to us, as 21st century people in, in North America, we're like, why would that even matter? Well, the basic issue was that meat was pretty scarce back then. Okay? You couldn't just drive down to Meyer, go to the meat department, and pick up a couple of steaks like you can today. That was for rich people. Instead, most people back then survived on a pretty bland diet of bread, cereal, vegetables, and maybe a bit of honey or cheese from time to time. In fact, if you go to the Mediterranean today, that's still what a lot of people eat. Medita- Mediterranean cuisine is still largely vegetables, pita bread, and a bit of honey or cheese from time to time. One place you could get meat back then, though, at least at a price that the average person could afford, was the local temple. That's because when people brought their sacrifices to the local temple, whether it was the temple of Artemis or Aphrodite or Zeus or whatever pagan or Roman god it was a temple to, what the pagan priests would do is offer that sacrifice by roasting it over a fire, and then as a way of making a bit of extra cash, whether for themselves or for the temple, they would sell it in the temple market to people who would come and buy that meat and take it home to eat it. It'd be like if instead of your offerings on Sunday, you brought some livestock here, okay, and that was your offering to God, but then I opened up a butcher shop out of the back of the West Wing, and then I would take your offerings and and use them to sell uh, either for some extra money for the church or for myself. That's kind of what was going on. Don't do that, by the way, okay? Eugene Peterson got his start in a butcher shop before he became a pastor, but I have no interest in that. Anyway, that was the situation in Corinth. And what seems to have been going on in the Corinthian church was that the Corinthian Christians were wondering if they could still go to those pagan temples and buy that meat and eat it. They used to before they were Christians, but now that they had become Christians, was that still okay? In fact, it even seems like they had asked Paul about this in a previous letter that they had sent to him. Because that meat was sacrificed to an idol, a false god was eating it, participating in idolatry. Was that idolatrous? Or because they were Christians now and they knew that those gods weren't even real in the first place, was it okay? You sort of get a sense of why there was a debate about this. And the Corinthians were split. Some of them seemed to say, look, we're free in Christ. Okay, those gods aren't real, so we can do whatever we want. Eat as much of that idol meat as you want to. But others seemed to say, ah, I don't know. 
that meat was sacrificed to an idol, it might be participating in idolatry to eat it. Plus, what will our unbelieving neighbors think? You know, they know that we are Christians. They know that we don't believe in these gods anymore. And so if they see us showing up at their temples and shopping there and buying meat that's been sacrificed to idols, what will they think? They might think that Christians worship other gods in addition to the one that we confess, in addition to Jesus. And so to all of this, Paul basically says four things. First, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't do it at the temple, he says. That sends too many mixed messages. But if you go to someone's house and they serve you some meat, don't ask whether it's idol meat or not. Feel free to eat it. Okay, those gods aren't real. Meat is just meat. Don't eat it, though, he says, if it causes someone else to stumble. If it harms your witness or causes someone to question your faith or causes them to question their own faith, then don't do it. As Paul says in verses 23 through 24 here, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. What Paul is basically saying there is, look, just because you can do something and your your conscience is fine with it, doesn't mean that you should. You need to take other people and their consciences into account too. In other words, as Christians, we should only do things that benefit, build up, and enhance others, not just ourselves. Paul's point is that, they should, is that we shouldn't do just what we think is okay, but we need to take other people and what they think into account too. Um, this is a total side note. I don't have this in the sermon, but this is actually what I used to talk about when it came to swearing when I was a youth pastor, okay? Uh, the only language that scripture actually prohibits is swearing by a false god, swearing falsely or swearing on using God's name when you're actually not telling the truth. That's the only thing. It says nothing necessarily of what is called like coarse language. Okay? Um, And I remember talking about this in my youth group, and I said, you know, Scripture talks a lot about profaning God's name, misusing it, and swearing falsely, but it doesn't actually say anything about coarse language. And some of my youth group kids understood the loophole. They said, so, well, I can use some four-letter words. I said, no, actually, because it's not just your conscience that matters. It's actually whether or not it harms your witness or harms somebody else's faith. And so it's not just about what you can do. You have to take the other people around you into account. And I said, and just tell your parents that I said that. <laughs> so I had to clarify. What, what Paul's saying here is it's not just us and what we think we're free to do that matters. It's, what, it's how it affects the community. Other people need to factor in. Paul's actually preaching against a strict individualism that says, I'm free to do whatever I want. Even if that's technically true, maybe it's not wise and maybe it harms others around you. That's his point. That's what he's getting at here. Because that, Paul says, when you operate that way, not just according to your own conscience, but according to the broader community, it glorifies God. In verse 31, Paul writes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's actually the main point of this passage. In fact, given Paul's larger argument here in chapters 5 through 14, that's the main point of most of this letter. Do what glorifies God, not what detracts from his glory. What Paul is saying here is that our ethical and moral decisions aren't ultimately just about ourselves. 
And our ethical and moral decisions aren't ultimately just about others, even though, like we just talked about, other people need to factor in. What our ethical and moral decisions as Christians are ultimately about is God. Does what we do bring him glory? That's the larger question in this passage. Do our actions honor him? Do they reflect the way he created us to live and function? Because if so, that brings him glory. Like any invention, functioning properly brings glory to the inventor, right? If you make something and it works well, it makes you look good. When we function the way that God created us to, the way he invented us to, it makes him look good. It brings him glory. And so the question becomes, well, how do we know what that looks like? If living well brings God glory, then how do we know how to live well? Well, we have an example, Paul says. God's own son, Jesus Christ. And we are called to live the way he lived, follow his example, and imitate him. In verses 32 through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Put simply, Paul is reminding the Corinthians here, and us as Jesus' disciples still today, that Jesus didn't just do whatever he wanted. Okay? Jesus was not an individualist who said, I'm just going to do whatever's good for me. He didn't just do what was convenient or easy. Contrary to our cultural narratives and the messages that we get bombarded with over and over and over, he wasn't just looking out for himself, looking out for numero uno, looking out for his own interests or his own benefit. If he was, I can't imagine that he would have submitted to the cross. Instead, what Jesus did was he focused on the good of others. As Paul puts it elsewhere, Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus didn't do what was best for him. He didn't just look out for himself. He didn't selfishly focus only on what benefited him. Instead, he focused on others. And when it comes to their larger ethical and moral questions here, Paul tells the Corinthians, so should you. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. Again, that's what discipleship is, right? We talked about this all the way back in the first sermon uh, in this series a couple weeks ago, Labor Day weekend, so none of you heard it. But um, at its root, what discipleship is is imitation, it's copying your rabbi. It's doing what your rabbi, your teacher, your master does. Not just learning from them what to think or believe or confess, but what to do, who to be, and how to live. In fact, in that sermon uh, back that weekend, the first sermon in this series, we talked a bit about how the lengths to which some early Jewish disciples would go to learn that from their rabbi, right? 
What were some of the examples we gave? Hiding under their rabbi's bed, crowding around his outhouse while he was going to the bathroom. That was the length to which some early Jewish disciples would go because they wanted to learn what their master, their rabbi, their teacher was like in every area of his life, even things as mundane as sleeping or going to the bathroom. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here, too. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate him. Join me in learning from our rabbi, not just so that you can believe in him or check a bunch of theological boxes, but so that you, we, I can truly live as his disciples. I like how John Mark Comer talks about this again in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He writes, to be one of Jesus' Talmudim, which is the Hebrew word for disciple, is to apprentice under Jesus. Put simply, it's to organize your life around three basic goals. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what he would do if he were you. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus would do if he was living your life. Later in the book, Comer expands on that. He says, the central question of our apprenticeship to Jesus is pretty straightforward. How would Jesus live if he were me? How would Jesus live if he were me? If you're taking notes, that would be a good one to write down. Then he goes on, he says, I mean, Jesus was a first century single Jewish rabbi, not a 21st century parent, account manager, student pastor, or professional luchador. So we have to ideate and transpose a bit. And if you're wondering, by the way, what a luchador is, go watch the Jack Black movie Nacho Libre sometime. Um, It's incredibly stupid, but it's also incredibly funny, and you can thank me later. Okay, back to Comer. He says, Jesus wasn't a dad. I am. I imagine if he were dad to Jude, Moses, and Sunday, which are Comer's kids' names, he would spend a lot of time with them. So I do that as an act of my apprenticeship to Jesus, who never had kids. Say you're a new wife or mother. Jesus was neither. But your driving question is, how would he do this? Or you're working on high-rise condo development. How would Jesus design this community? And so on and so forth. If Jesus was married to your spouse... How would he treat and love them? If he had your kids, how would he parent them? If he worked your job, went to your school, lived with your roommate, drove your car, what would he be like? What would he do? What would he not do? How would he treat or not treat the people that you come into contact with in your life? Answer those questions, Paul says in essence here, and then go and do that. For that is what it means to be a Christian. It means to learn from our rabbi not just what to think, not just doctrine, not just what to believe, but what to do and how to be too. And that, in a nutshell, is what these table groups and practicing the way and everything we're going to do with the spiritual disciplines on and off for the next three years, that's what they're all about. They're about helping us encounter and grow in our relationship with our rabbi, Jesus, so that we can learn from him, imitate him, and become more like him, Christian disciples that we are. Now, I need to be clear here. That doesn't save us. Being more like Jesus is good, but it doesn't save us. 
We are not advocating for a new works righteousness here with all of this. Sadly, that is what has all too often happened with the spiritual disciplines. They become just another form of legalism. Just another list of rules, another list of boxes for us to check off and tick off, but nothing more than that. After all, most of the other religious leaders who were running around at the same time as Jesus were really, really good at the spiritual disciplines. You know what they were called? Pharisees. They were really good at being godly people, very disciplined people in their spiritual lives. And what they did... They didn't, they didn't intend to do this, but what they did was they ended up taking God's perfect law, his revealed blueprint for how to live, and they so overdeveloped it, put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, that they turned discipleship, spiritual discipline, and faithfulness to God into rote religion. And that's the temptation, that's the danger, that's the pitfall that we also can fall into with our own discipleship and practice of the spiritual disciplines as we pursue Jesus. At least that's the pitfall that we can fall into if we forget about grace. You see, my friends, we are not saved by works. We are not saved by how good we are. We are not saved by how well we Sabbath or how often we fast or how many times a day we pray or any of the other stuff we're going to spend the next three years on and off talking about. Instead, we are saved by Jesus Christ alone. Full stop. End of story. Our redemption is through him. It's, it's something he gives us. It's grace. And that's the gospel, right? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to reach for it. You just receive it. You just receive it. And then once you receive it, once you enter into this gracious relationship with Jesus, once you become, through no effort of your own, but only his, one of his people, you get to get to. It's an invitation. You get to be his disciple too. We get to follow him. We get to be with him. We get to love him and we get to imitate him. That's who we are as Christians. We are Christ's disciples because he first saved us. We become his apprentices because he redeemed us. We are people learning to become more like our rabbi because first, he was our savior. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, as human beings, sinful and fallen, we would take anything and turn it into idolatry. Even something as good is trying to be in a relationship with you. But Lord, you have saved us from our own sin. It's an invitation of your grace. Thank you. And now, as your people, as people who want to know you and love you, through your Holy Spirit, help us to become more like the people you created us to be. And we have an example. His name is Jesus. He saved us, and now we get to be his disciples. Help us to truly live like the disciples of Christ that we are. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.